Hey everybody, thanks for coming back for another episode of Level 99. Do appreciate all of you coming back and supporting this channel. And this is a podcast about IT, so DevOps, automation, cloud, you name it. This week is going to be a new series that I have been actually very interested in starting. It's going to be a part of a day in the life series. But for this episode, it's going to be in the day of life of a senior cloud engineer. And with us today is Michael. Michael, I'm going to go ahead and let you introduce yourself. But uh, as a fun icebreaker, why don't you go ahead and tell us about a most fun or proudest project that you ever worked on? Sure. So, hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Mike Swaikata, and I am your guest speaker for today. And it's uh, lovely to be here. So, uh, as it was mentioned, I'm a senior cloud engineer at Construct Connect. It is a data-driven company based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, we are majorly involved in construction data, hence the name. Uh, but for me personally, as a DevOps engineer, I have been working at several different companies that all had some varying degree of automation uh, to start with. So classically, DevOps was a role. In the last 10 to 15 years, DevOps was considered a job title, a job posting. But thankfully, in the last few years, we've realized it's not a job toasting, toasting, it's a job posting, it's a way of thinking. So now this is the way that you should be doing things, which makes it a little more easier to swallow. So with that kind of like context in mind, I, I talk about the, the icebreaker asked, which was the most uh, fun or interesting project that I've ever worked on. Uh, at my last job, uh, so before I begin, classically, I am network architecture. So I have a very strong networking background, Cisco, Juniper, et cetera. So that's why the context of this matters. Uh, so when I started off in a previous job, we had a major problem where we needed to standardize and simplify our network configs. Now, this is a problem for basically every field, but for network equipment, it gets to be a particular pain in the butt. Um, so we had to do a lot of efforts to say, how do we make changes to the environment? How do we make changes to configurations? How do we do things without bringing them down? Because uh, for the entire stack, the network is probably one of the more important pieces that has to work. Uh, you've all seen the experiences when Amazon goes down, there's a decent chance it's one of their core routers. There's a core infrastructure network goes down. So we were, I was tasked with solving this problem. Uh, and actually, that's not entirely true. I tasked myself with solving the problem because I got angry. That's, that's how I tend to, to fix things is I get pissed at them. Um, so I started writing a script in Python using um, uh, an SSH library called NetMiko. Um, NetMiko is a derivative of Paramico, just mainly streamlined for network equipment. And basically the entire thought process behind the script was, I would like to write configs and I would like the equivalent of Ansible for network equipment. At the time, Ansible did not really have a lot in the Cisco world. So I started writing this toolkit that basically allowed engineers to create what command they would like executed and then what command is the relevant show command that would say that your command has been successful, right? So it's the equivalency of saying, I want to set um, like the time on a router. I want it to be EST or UTC or whatever. So you would say your command is clock zone EST, and then your, your validation command would be show clock, and it would look for a specific line that you would enter. Um, and of course, as time goes on, you rewrite the whole thing, because when you have an idea in the very beginning, it's very simple, straightforward, but by the end of it, it's way beyond what you planned for. So you have to go back and start iterating through and changing and fixing things, which I did for several times. Um, 
And so what ended up happening was uh, by the time that I was done on that project, I had created a series of Python scripts that one was for validation. So it was the configuration toolkit. It would, it would look at uh, an inventory list of JSON files and it would say, I'm going to connect to each one of these and I'm going to check the inventory of this equipment. I'm going to look for the configurations. I'm going to look for the policies. I'm going to look for everything. And then another one would take those inventoried JSON files and map them together. Um, plant you. This was this was I. Uh, this was me abusing Plant UML because Plant UML as a syntax language you can automate. So I would basically can read through the JSON file, look for all of the neighbors of the network equipment, and then create a topology based off of that. Uh, so I had a mapping toolkit. Well, and that mapping toolkit ran every hour to, to adjust for any kind of new equipment that came online, and then it would propagate to an HTML page. So it was a very static content, but it was a visual representation of here's the infrastructure, here's the network at this piece. Um, so not only was it doing discovery, was it doing validation, it was doing web interfaces, and then after that it was also acting as a flow system for, uh, for information. So for example, when we had new network equipment come online, it would propagate it out to ACS or Cisco ICE, or it would go to ServiceNow for asset management. Anything that I could find a relevancy to hit, it was just an API hit. Huh. I'm going to send this data. Um, and it took me about a year, uh, and it was pretty much me working on this project. Uh, but essentially what it became is if an engineer would put a piece of equipment online, let's say just plugged in a switch, and they put in an IP address, and they gave it the very basic like Cisco, Cisco, um, the automation system would eventually find it and then start pushing configs to it. Hmm. So it made it as hands-off as possible. Uh, and I was extremely proud of that project. Uh, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That, and I'm pretty sure that literally reduced a lot of pain points and time for, for all of you guys. You know what? It, it did, but I will highlight that I had one key failure as an engineer, uh, which would be one of the pieces of advice that I will happily give out to everybody, is understanding your audience. Um, I was DevOps. I was automation. I got tired of hands-on keyboard. Um, I was comfortable with Git. I was comfortable with repositories. Yeah. My colleagues were not. So because everything was driven through Git and pipelines, they were very hesitant to engage in the toolkit where engineers that were a fan of, of DevOps and were comfortable in Git, they loved it. They were like, I can go see what settings there are and I can go check. And right. it's like, yep, I can. But my direct colleagues, because it didn't have a graphical front end where they could do things, they were very, like, very resistant to it. So uh, it had the ability... For the, for, I'm sorry, for the staff that used it, it was very, very powerful. For the staff that didn't use it, it was just, it was another thing Mike was working on. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I, not, I'm not entirely bitter. I'm not entirely <laughs> bitter. With, I've noticed with our line of work, you can't make everyone happy. There's always going to be that one group or team that's just, they're, they're not going to have it. it. But the most you can do is at least you can meet most of your, uh, your like stakeholders and like at least alleviate yes. some of that pain. Yeah, and, and and I know that engineers coming into the field will probably hear a lot of people talking about the stakeholders and you go, why do I care about the people that aren't working on this thing? And the answer is because those are the people you're working for. Yeah. You're, you're building this thing for them. If they're not going to use it, why are you building it? So yeah. that, that was a very rough lesson uh, for me to uh, to move forward from. 
So I guess the the first question I have is, how did you get into where you are now? In one of my jobs, I started working for General Electric, and I was put in charge of a major migration project where one of the businesses was spinning off and being formed into its own business. And there, when you when companies undergo something like that, usually they have what's called a TSA, a Terminal Services Agreement, that says that you can access certain number of resources for X number of months. Uh, which allows them to start migrating the business off. But if they still need access to domain controllers or DNS or files or whatever, it gives them time. But they also are supposed to have a cutoff date. Well, they're only supposed to be allowed access to the things that they're only allowed to be accessing, which typically that involves a firewall. That involves multiple security controls, but at a network level, that's a firewall. So the way that we were gathering that data was through a process using NetFlows. And NetFlows are data samplings across the across the network. I look at a I look at a router. A router had a packet that went across it that said, "I was from this source host, this destination host, port protocol, blah." And I had to make firewall rules on it. And I had to make several thousand firewall rules oh, wow. every time. Wow! Because what would happen is we would either look for like terminal services agreement number X, and those are these systems. Well, it's never just those systems because for example, in web servers, right? You're not gonna hit that web server. You're gonna hit that one and that one and that one. So you have to start tracking those connections. So when it got to the point of like, okay, we're ready comfortable for this one, we, I would deploy you know, 4,000 firewall rules. Well, I as a human being cannot type 4,000 firewall rules. So um, I used what I had available to me, which was a Linux box with Perl. Uh, and so I wrote a firewall automation toolkit, a firewall rule automation toolkit that would take the NetFlow data that I would provide it. And it would one, summarize it to tell me like, here's the number of hosts, here's the connections that it was going to, port protocol, but then also it would generate the firewall rules and what was called the risk matrix because for firewalls, you have you would have to generate, like what is the potential risk to the business by this firewall rule existing? So I had to generate the, the risk matrix mm -hmm. for that as well, which was, a, it was a CSV file. So you have to put in, you know, all those fields and make sure they line up correctly. But that was the actual first start of my career to say like, uh, of an actual, I feel comfortable building this system. Mm -hmm. So from what I understand is you first got into networking and then after that you were getting tired of all of the redundant work and that's where your passion for automation kind of came in. Yep. Okay. Exactly right. And I think, and this is how I feel is what makes a good, at least DevOps or person in automation, good at automation is wanting to be lazy. Cause you, you know what? I, that was my recommendation. That was exactly what I was going to say. You got to be lazy. Because <laughs> there's been so many times where I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> I really yeah. don't. You, it, it's even to the point where you get tired of copying and yeah. pasting, right? Yeah. Because because when you're like, oh, uh, I was working on uh, some DNS stuff for work uh, yesterday, and I had to create something like ten or twenty uh, conditional forwarding zones in GCP. Yeah. Well. I can literally copy and paste and hit replace, replace. And, but I was just like, that's too much. I don't even want to do yeah. that. So I wrote a module and like, that's it. So you, the, the best engineers are the laziest yeah. ones. There was a, this is going a little bit off topic, but uh, we used to have this thing at some of my old orgs was uh, called TFS team foundation server for Microsoft. Oh, well. And I hated it because they were just so, I mean, they were good at the time. Right. But nowadays it's just, 
you know, just sunset those bad boys and just move on. But whenever the dev team would deploy too hard and beat those boxes up, they'd always start messaging me like, hey, can you reboot it? Can you reboot it? Can you reboot it? And obviously we don't want to give them access to it. So I was just, at first I was like, fine, whatever. And then three months in, I was like, I'm sick and tired of spending like 12 minutes from going to the jump host from there, uh, RDPing to, to the box just for, to reboot it. I was like, I'm, I'm sick of this. So I created them a Jenkins job with, uh, with an Ansible playbook where I had a new service uh, uh, account and I asked the VM folks like, hey, I just want the list of these 100 boxes only. Nothing else would just stop and start permissions and nothing more. They're like, I got you. Put it in. I gave their team access and they gave like their lead and their advisor just like um, read and write and, uh, and uh, a couple more permissions to the pipeline so they can add more folks if they needed to. Breast of my time there, not a peep. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's exactly what right. And not only was that the quote unquote laziest solution, it was also the smartest ones because you're involving security permissions, you're involving the staff membering, you're, you're involving the ability to scale it, right? Like those are all the golden metrics that we want to say, I'm only going to do this once. <laughs> if I have to do it more than once, I screwed up the first right. time. And then even just as a fail safe, because the I had like an email distro straight to it. So every time it would kick off the reboot, it would send them an email saying, hey, this one got rebooted to their to their email distro. So on the off chances, somebody on their team did reboot it. They don't come to me like, hey, why did you do it? I'm like, hey, I didn't. It wasn't me, buddy. What? It wasn't me. <laughs> and there's and there's your paper trail. There's your audit trail. Yep. Exactly. Yep. So what got you into networking, if you don't mind me asking? Because me, I would not touch networking with a 10-foot pole. I've tried it. Every time someone tries to explain to me, it just is one of those things that just goes above my head. I'm like, subnet, via firewall rules. I'm just It just doesn't click for me. Yeah. So when I was in undergrad, um, I worked at the university as an intern and I worked with some of the smartest people I to date have ever met. Um, I praise them for my mentorship mm -hmm. and I worked as, I started as a desktop support technician, uh, because that's how I was in the university. And then I went to the server team and then I went to, uh, what we called the project team, which was basically a collection of varying individuals with multi-skilled talents. Uh, and this was 2000 between 2005 and 2009. Um, and so when I was graduating in my very last semester, uh, the last year, really, uh, I was taking the university required networking class. And so I was taking this networking class and which meant that I was learning a little bit about VLANs and subnetting and how networks function, but the class was just too focusing on the wrong things. Well, our senior network engineer, was going on vacation. Mm -hmm. And so we went on vacation and his team uh, weren't as adept at the network as he was. Uh, he was generations above them. And we had a problem one night and we had a problem where one of the cores went offline. And so the director called me and we were very good friends. I had a very good working relationship with him. And he calls me and he goes, you've been taking networking classes, right? And I went, yes. And he goes, cool come to the university. <laughs> and so that, that literally is how I got started is because I was in a class and the director knew it. And so either he had his confidence and faith in me or the wanting to expose me to something else, regardless of what it ended up being, um, got me in that. And because that problem occurred, 
you stay with the problem until it's fixed, right? So I was the one responsible to make sure that the single core in the university was online in an environment that I had no, no reason to be in, but you stick with right. it. Uh, so when he comes back from the vacation, he says, wow, I built the network better than I did because, or uh, better than I thought, because you had a 50, 50 shot of taking down the, the network and you picked the right one. And I'm like, good, good. <laughs> I'm so glad. So then he started explaining it to me and it started making sense. So that is literally how I got my start as a network engineer. That is, that's, that's incredible. I think the one thing I wish schools would do more often is actually have some of these more live scenarios. Cause I think what you learn, cause I think what you were learning and you seeing it in practice is what triggered your passion for networking. Well, a hundred percent correct. So a, a fun fact, actually, I have, and I love uh, being an adjunct professor oh, wow. uh, at that same university. I've gone back and I've taught several courses, some on network engineering, Windows system administration, Linux system administration. Uh, and the, the fun part about being an adjunct that the university appreciates, this is Northern Kentucky University, by the way, uh, that appreciates their adjuncts is because we are out in the field doing. Mm. So we have the most recent knowledge of what toolkits are available, what systems are out there, and we can bring that into the classroom. And so that's what I did. Uh, when I was teaching networking, I would say here, we're, this is the book we're going to use, and I'm going to test you on this book. But as we go through the chapters, I'm going to tell you why you should care about each of these things. What relevancies do you need to know from this? Mm -hmm. um, because as most students have that difficulty, like you mentioned, subnetting, when they get to the subnetting piece, it's like, I don't base to what, <laughs> how did you, how did you number this? I mean, you, you lose yeah. it, right? That's, that's the hard part. But what I preferred to do was change the structure of the class to find the reasons that you need to care, hook you in on those, and then teach you the stuff that enables you to care. Mm. Uh, I do that with Python. I taught Python as a programming language. I have um, the networking stuff, the system administration stuff. So that's that, that has always been my role as an educator to say, I want to find the reasons that you should care about this. And we're going to, we're going to enable you to have a passion about this. And I, for the students that are genuinely interested, it does work. When I was in my undergrad and I did take a networking class, my most fondest memory of a networking class was where my professor came in and just dropped the box. He's like, I want you guys to take this box of ethernet cables, wire them straight to, to the head, clamp them. And if it works, you, you pass, uh, you get an A on your exam. If not, you fail. It was, Oh yeah. The, the, the yeah. wiring test, you, you, Proving that you can actually assemble an Ethernet. That was the most fun memory I have of a networking class. And that's what got me really into it. But then when I went to the next level of the networking class, when I got onto like the whole like network flows and the VPCs, I just, I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. You, you're, you're missing that gap of excitement yeah. and interest why you should care. And that's, and I totally understand that. And that's what I think a lot of uh, universities and educational facilities really kind of, of lack yeah. in that structure. Now, I'm not saying all of them, of course, uh, but getting engagement with students for learning is the most important part. The, I also had taken a Java class, and this is what kind of really did deter me from coding. So the, the program director refused to let any of the professors to go off script, to let them teach that maybe some of the students that needed some more help, they wouldn't do that. So the we had a Java professor and he was actually worked full time at, I think it was either Booz Allen or, or one of those big companies of that nature. And, you know, 
me and a couple of guys were struggling. We would kind of kick back after class and he would stay with us. And this was a night class, by the way. And we would stay until like 11 o'clock, 1130. And he was like helping us out, giving us real life scenarios of what he would do just so we can understand it. But then once obviously they found out, they shut that down quick. And I was like, man, I was actually enjoying this. <laughs> yeah, it's very similar to what I would do. And I'm so sorry that you had that negative experience. But I appreciate that professor wanting to do that for yeah. you. Um, but yes, that's, that is, that is the, I, I will teach you what you need to know. And then I will teach you why you mm -hmm. need to care. And also here's when we get clever. And that's, that's where you start building this really interesting fundamentals to, to branch off of. How did your experience go further into DevOps after, you know, your Perl like scripting and things like that? Like, how did you get more interested in to what you are now? So the answer to that is kind of what we mentioned before is I got lazy <laughs> and I got curious and I got lazy. So the, the Perl script was something that ran on a server that I had access to and it, it required me to SSH into it and then to SFTP pull that file back down. And, and I was like, this is manual effort. I'm, I'm frustrated mm -hmm. by this, but I eventually left that job. So then from that point, when I got the new job where I started working on that network automation toolkit, um, I started learning about things like pipelines because that's where I said, I want to make this thing. I want to make it, I made it on my laptop and I was SSHing from my laptop and using my credentials and I was connecting to things. And then I said, well, I published this code in the source code because I need it to work. And that's when you start hitting, uh, you start hitting, hitting walls along the way is you go, all right, cool. I'm going to only commit to the master branch, right? <laughs> And then you break something and you're like, what? I, it broke. What do I? And you have to revert back, but you have to remember which mm -hmm. one you reverted back to. So you go, you know how you fix that problem? Don't do that. <laughs> you go to branches and suddenly you learn branch yeah. theory, right? So that's where it, it becomes the, how do I prevent my own dump? Mm -hmm. And that's where I go from writing Perl scripts to basically then saying, I want the ability to automate in infrastructure provisioning. Because it all starts, it, it's, it's, you don't wake up one day and go, I want to do this. You wake up every day and you go, you know, it'd be cool. And then you think about how to do it. And then you also figure out how to make that easier, how to make that mm -hmm. simpler, how to make that smarter, faster, all that good stuff. So realistically, what it became was I'm going to start with what I, what I need. And then I'm going to build on that to solve problems along the way. Um, I, I started introducing unit tests to my script because once I accidentally published uh, a debug equals true line to my code, and that went to production in, the, in, our, in, our, in my container. So then my logs completely blew up because I was outputting everything. Right. And I went, oh God, I forgot. How do I fix that? Well, I wrote a script that would basically look as a regex for debug equals true and looking for spaces, looking for case insensitives. And if I found it, it would fail a unit test. Mm -hmm. So I could never make that mistake again. And I was genuinely grateful for it because I would continually make that mistake. <laughs> you, you have to, you, you, you hit the wall, figure out how to get past the wall and then how to prevent that wall from ever happening again. No, yeah, I, I can definitely relate. I think the common theme that what we're both are saying in both our experiences and our journey is there's always a error if when it was a human interaction, but once you do automate that, it just makes things so much more seamless. It also then starts to change your brain, how you start thinking right. about things. Because the first time you do it, you go, 
ah, I did it that way. And then you think about your next task and you go, do I have to do this more than twice? How often do I have to do it? And that's when your brain starts realizing, I wonder if there's an API for this. I wonder if there's a, a toolkit. Is there a CLI command or something like that? And so you start thinking about the problem differently every time and it just becomes more native as you go. So in your current role now, I know you mentioned that you are in GCP. What led you into GCP? Was it was just, you know, a new position and that's the the nature of where they were going? Or was it that you were actually interested in Google Cloud? So it the 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 big part about it was it was the position itself. I always had an interest in it in the in the previous job that I had, we had touched on the possibility of going into mm -hmm. GCP. But it was uh, one of the big things about GCP is that the way that they handle scope and scale is significantly different than how like Azure or how uh, DigitalOcean or how AWS does their 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 concepts of scale. So once we found out that there was a significant cost attached to that, it was like, well, we were only going to use it for this one mm -hmm. service. I don't think we're going to use that. And so it was, oh man, I missed that opportunity. So coming into this this field where, where they said, hey, we need this level of work done. And so I started doing that level of work and then became, listen, this stuff would get a lot easier if we started doing it in Google. And so we were already in Google. We were actually in the process of evacuating um, our AWS tenants. And we're still we're in the process of trying to evacuate our Azure tenants as well and moving into basically the GCP space. Um, so realistically, it was the job. But the the I had an interest in it because, first of all, it's Google. Like I, I, as much as I want to say like anything at all, when Google does, Google will solve a problem better than I ever will be able to. So if Google can say like, hey, this is how we would do stuff. I'm like, I'm super interested at that. How, how can I fix my problems with what you have? And then take it as a learning experience to go, you know what? Yours costs way more money. I'd like to do it this way and go from there. So how would you say your experiences with Google? Because I, to be honest with you, besides AWS and Azure, I haven't met anyone else that's actually been on any other platform, right? So, and then the the one person that I have met, and I and I think it was at uh, it was reInvent twenty nineteen, and he mentioned that he was on on Google Cloud. He was just here just for fun. He said that Google Cloud was a lot more like it was a lot harder. How is your process? Uh, how, let me rephrase the question. How is your experience with Google Cloud overall? I will 100% agree with the person that you okay. mentioned. Um, Amazon and Azure, uh, well, I'll keep it to Amazon. So Amazon Amazon Web Services and, the, and the, the private clouds, the public clouds function a lot as you would expect in a private environment. So for example, in a typical, let's say 10, 15 years ago, if I had an on-prem data center and I had load balancers, so you would say I have a load balancer and it has uh, the virtual interface and then the, the load balancer intercepts the connections and then from its sub interface, it will send the connection. So it looks like it's coming from the load balancer itself. And of course you can customize the load balancer to just do a pass through and things like that. So the Amazon does that same thing where if you have a TCP load balancer uh, or an HTTP load balancer, it, the, the connections are coming from the load balancer. Uh, and and the, that's how it comes through. In GCP, it doesn't do that. GCP does things that I will argue are very smart, but it's so off the, the normal path that it's like it took some effort to realize that. 
So for example, in that same comparison in GCP, when you want a load balancer, um, it's actually not a load balancer. It's a policy rule set. So when you make a connection to a load balancer, you have an IP address, but that IP address isn't attached to some service. It gets assigned to the service group of your hosts. So the IP address of your load balancer exists on your scaling group members. What? And the policy is a load balance algorithm to find out health, yeah. you know, all the typical health checks that we do yeah. load balancer. So they basically are, you, they say, if you're destined for this IP address, they will just route it to their policy set and then forward it to the host. So imagine how well, I've been working on a load balancer set and I'm trying to understand how certain things work. And I go, is it the load balancer that's having a problem? And my Google engineer goes, so fun fact. <laughs> and he starts explaining it to me. And then he shows me in the Linux kernel where you can actually verify this kind of stuff. And that's when you go, oh, you guys are playing a different ball game. <laughs> That seems just more complex than it even needs to be. It, it is, but at the same rate, it actually makes sense at a certain scale. Because, for example, if you, uh, the Amazon load balancers are only meant to handle certain amounts of throughput, right. right? Well, if you take out the load balancer, your throughput limitation is now the instance mm -hmm. itself. Because it's just Google's backend is just their compute. They can throw as much resources and computing cycle as they need to on this. So your 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 bottleneck is now your individual hosts, and now you also don't have a man in the middle to establish those connections, right? Because you can say like, well, you lose something in the session that if you connect to a load balancer and your load balancer to the host, you don't have a full unless you build that map. You don't have necessarily a full map of it. But if you check it from the host's perspective, you can see exactly where all those connections came from. Huh. It's fascinating. And the moment that you start thinking about those problems, you go, I see why you did it. But also, <laughs> I didn't expect that at all. Would you say that's a reoccurring theme in GCP? Oh, 100%. Okay. 100%. I, I mentioned earlier that I was working on a DNS component. Um, and one of the things that I was doing is I, handling these conditional forwarders. Well, in my mind, coming again from the classic right. infrastructure sense, I have a UDP load balancer, and then I have DNS servers underneath. Well, from my on-premise domains or Active Directory domains, I have conditional forwarders set up for that zone, and I target the load balancer addresses. That makes sense. From Google's perspective, when you have a DNS query, it goes up to their metadata service. Their metadata service, again, follows the policy rule set, and then it sends it to something else. I was sending it to the load balancer, mm -hmm. the load balance addresses, because that makes the most sense. And when I was talking to the Google support engineer about that, he goes, actually, you should send it directly to the hosts. And he explained that the GCP DNS has a hope proxy built into it where they handle all the load balancing, all the, the failovers and the monitoring of your health checks for you. And by putting it through a load balancer, you are losing uh, metrics because they can't chart everything correctly. But if you bypass the load balancer, you now have a service to host and you can measure latency and throughput. And I went, well, okay. <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's literally every problem that I try to solve, because this is my, this is my learning right. experience with, with Google, is I would do it in a classic sense, and then I find out this is how you actually should do it. 
but as a, in the security aspect, I feel like that is a risk if you're going even testing straight to the host. Well, and that's why you'd get things like your your network firewalls. So Google's, uh, it, so Amazon traditionally has these security right. groups, right? So you have the security group attached to the EC2 instance, and then of course you have IP tables or the Windows firewall that doesn't work. <laughs> uh, and, but then in the Google land, you have labels. Okay. Now labels act as what what security rules do you want to apply to this host? The label itself, you can customize. What source addressing do you want? Do you want it from another label, right? Because you can have two, you can have auto scaling group where instances are going up and down. So instead of trying to attach it from a subnet perspective, you say all hosts with the label X are able to permit talk to this host on Y. So your auto scaling group goes up and down, doesn't matter all day long. As long as they have this label on it, huh. you can connect in on the specification. And because this is a rule set, a policy set, you can have hundreds of labels to handle connections. You want it application-based, you can do application-based. You want it to do, now of course, like if we're st- if we're talking internet in, then yes, absolutely have that right. middle man in, the, in there, that way you can do all kinds of filtering. But like, those are the levels of, of detail that you can kind of get into to go, this is a whole new operation at scale of how do I, enable this how do i make it so it's just mm-hmm. this and so those like the from a network infrastructure app to app or host to host uh those labeling those label methods are really powerful and then of course you get into iam perspectives right so you can even put in iam roles for certain hosts to be able to hit certain com- resources or certain back-end comp- uh, components so it's just a different way of considering the problem hmm. how what about the the automation aspect of GCP. So I know with with AWS, it's everything's an API call, right? Like it was built by you can tell it was built by engineers. Like it's, it's beautiful. Like yes. once I I learned that everything could be done through a CLI or an API, I have not touched a console <laughs> again. And especially with like Ansible, right? All those modules does a really great job of just working so seamlessly with with the product. What is your experience with, you know, as, as an engineer in your current role with automation and, and GCP? So GCP, in my experience, the majority of things can be found via API. Um, I write predominantly in Terraform. So I handle a lot of those API connections via Terraform in the Google provider. There are some things that are not API exposed that you can only get from like their, uh, their SDA, SDK toolkit. Um, so for example, uh, talking about the DNS component, uh, when you when you assign poli- the DNS policy to a network or the VPC, uh, if you want your on-premise hosts to target that policy, you have to give them IP addresses. Well, there is no API call, at least that I'm aware of, that you can say on my network, of my subnets, what are the IP addresses that I need to give for these people to do DNS queries against my zone? You have to go into the SDK and then run a command line uh, script to get those addresses. So for the majority of things, API, API all the way, but there are things that you don't have an API for, but they have an application Hmm. for. Have you found that to be in a challenge? Yes. But it's not a challenge without answers okay. because, so for example, if I need, 
the, that particular problem, I decided I wasn't going to answer. I wasn't going to handle that problem uh, with like an Ansible playbook or something like that because I wanted it all mm -hmm. in Terraform. So what instead of giving them IP addresses that could change because as you as you reapply, if you delete a zone and reapply it, the IP addresses will change. I have to contact my on-prem team and say, by the way, here you go. I didn't want to do that. So what I ended up doing was saying, what if I didn't do that? And I've, uh, I used open, uh, I'm sorry, PowerDNS Recursor to basically create that infrastructure that says I have unchanging IP addresses. So now instead of talking directly to Google, you'll talk to me. And then for the underlying components, they talk to Google. Okay. So I put so, so for anything that I can't solve with an API, I put something in the middle that I can use to then leverage something else. That makes sense. Interesting. So in your in the position that you are now, let's say someone is interested in doing what you do, what kind of advice would you give them to start their journey into being either a networking or at least a uh, cloud engineer or automation? Yeah, I love this question. I um, There are so many engineers that feel that the DevOps mentality is too much. It's too difficult that you have to have a computer science background, right? You need to be a PhD in COBOL to make things work. And I will tell you that is not true. Um, I, I do not have a computer science degree. I have taken computer science classes and I hated them. But what got me into DevOps was problem solving. So to, to, to my engineers out there that are, are I, I kind of want to try this. The answer is find the most common thing that you have to do. Is it granting permissions to a user account? Is it bouncing a server? Is it um, sending an email, right? Like, do you need a status report email of, your, of a dashboard, right? Find that one problem and figure out what you can do to make it so that you don't have to do everything. And it doesn't have to be perfect the first time around, right? So let's say that you, you have to bounce a server every time. Well, as you mentioned, you have to go to the console. You have to go to an RDP session. You've got to step through, step through, step through. Let's say that my, my fictional friend engineer here wants to do that. And I would say, listen, what, about, what could you do to skip those mm -hmm. steps, right? Is there something that we could write on your laptop that you execute? And you just have a little bash script. You call the bash script. Bash script calls the, the parameters. And you make it easier and you step through that particular problem because you're going to, you're going to get underwater. You're going to get so overwhelmed with so many yeah. options. That's why you stick with what you're comfortable with. And you say, I know how to restart a server. Okay. How can you automate that process? And that's when you start figuring things out. And then when something breaks or when then something has an issue, you figure out the issue and then that's where you start and you just keep progressively making more and more iterate, iterate across your, your, your problem. And that will be your entryway because if you can, first of all, if you can solve a problem, the business loves right. you. That, that's what we're here for. We are here to enable the business and we're here to enable the business to be the best business that we want them to be. That's why they pay <laughs> us. <laughs> so if you can make it so that things go faster and things go smoother, the business loves it. And then you feel better because you have less context switching. You have less annoyances. You have more time for things. So that's how you start is that you just figure out that one thing you go from there. I think that's an amazing piece of advice. And I 100% agree with that because I remember my very first script was adding, I think it was users to a AD group. And I was tired of doing that manual. So I was like, how do I keep doing this? I, thanks to Reddit. And I was like, oh, PowerShell. 
<laughs> I was like, what the hell is PowerShell? So I Googled it. And then I found something off of uh, uh, Stack Overflow. Grabbed it. I was like, oh my God, this works. So I'm like banging away the same thing on, on PowerShell. And I was like, all right, how do I make this even simpler? Right? You just every time, whatever you do, especially if you're new in your journey, like what you were saying, do it and then make it better and then make it better and then make it better and then better. And then I was like, all right, so how do I just do a, uh, like make it better? So I put it into like a, just like a regular like file, hit the, had like a little like prompt for me. So I would just type things in and I was like, all right, now this is getting annoying. <laughs> how do I make this even easier? I'm, I'm tired of even copy and pasting. Oh, well now I would put in a request. Like whenever the email would come in, it would just grab that value and then it would just kick off the job. Yep. And, and that's, you essentially are moving yes. the problem because the problem starts with the problem. And then as you adjust it, you're just moving the problem down and down to the point where you say, I have made this thing and it does what I needed to do. What do I need to do so that I don't have right. to do this thing? And that's when you start taking the problem even further. But yes, that's it, it's it's getting interested and solving the problem is the best way to get involved and to, to start. There's a couple of guys that I work with now, and they've all expressed interest in you know automation or just more engineering. And they're like, "How do I start?" I'm like, "It's very overwhelming at first, right? Like, there's so many options. It's like writing a book or doing a math equation. There's a thousand ways to do it. None of it is right." But everyone has their own different way of doing something, right? Like the way I would script something is most likely different than the way you would write a script, 100%. So start small and then see what you like, right? Because me, I always thought, and I know you mentioned Terraform. I think Terraform is a phenomenal product and it works so great just going from like different providers. But the one thing I didn't like about Terraform with my previous use case scenarios was that when you didn't upgrade those values sometimes don't aren't backwards compatible with a version i'm just like why aren't you working yes. and that's yes. where i came to be and learn ansible it's just it works up until like so many versions ahead and then even if it the value is going to uh, deprecate it tells you many times in 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 the in the logs hey this value will be deprecated at x state this file will be deprecated at x state so even if you still don't do it well you had ample warnings ahead of time but there's a thousand and one ways of doing something you just got to find what you like to do and if it's networking like for you you know you found a way to make it enjoyable to, that you got rid of doing that four thousand and uh firewall entries or if it's database i i'll admit i don't like database stuff the only thing i can do is select star from and after that out don't ask me man um but, you know, and there was this one guy, he, uh, he was asking me, like, how he can move away from this. I was like, dude, just find a script and just whatever you have to do with the, your database for it, just automate it. So I, I kind of helped them work on the scripts. Like, I have no idea what you're doing, but I can tell you how you can automate. They just tell me what you need to put in and we'll work on this together. And sometimes I'm not encouraging handholding in any means, but sometimes like you just need that mentor or someone to shed that light of, of the process for you. And I think that is really critical in our in our line of work because you don't know what you kind of don't know. Oh yeah, I, that is actually a major problem in in the idea of getting started is that 
there are a lot of people out there that are comfortable just going to the man pages that are going online and reading everything and just kind of it all kind of makes sense right but there's a lot of people that it, it doesn't right it's so overwhelming to get started that you kind of need someone at the start to say how and and, and working through that so i if, if if engineers out there if you are if you don't have a mentor if you don't have the ability to just kind of to follow to follow your evolution of how you do something that's where i would encourage things like reddit posts uh the devops subreddit talks about a lot of different technologies different means of doing things different products different vendors you've got your individual uh toolkits out there so for my my ci pipeline is gitlab there's a gitlab subreddit uh you can do github actions there's a github subreddit there are reddit as a, as a community because of the volume of it have so many different engineers that are all looking at the problem and they're all thinking about it differently. Uh, so that community works really well in my experience. The big caveat to that is that you have to prove that you did right. something. Uh, you can't go to a post and just say, uh, this doesn't work and you post the script. <laughs> and because then, then you just, it, it's, it's, it's your help desk ticket that comes in the user says monitor, monitor right. fail. And you go, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. That's, that's the equivalency of it. So if you can put in the effort to say, this is what I've tried, this is what I've done, people mm -hmm. will help you. And that's great. Um, and alternatively, if you're not on Reddit, uh, the, 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 over, the Stack Overflow has an entire community set for all of your interests. There are DevOps uh, Stack Overflow communities. There's server, uh, there's servering, there's server, there's server ones, there's networking ones, there's non-technical ones. So the, between those two communities, if you're saying, I don't have someone that I could ask a question to, those are the communities that I would go to and ask the question to them. Yeah, definitely. I have found it to be such a great source of information, right? Even if you don't ask a question, you just search something up, 100% that your question that you're going to ask has already been asked. And, it, and it's... Yeah, the dangerous one is when you ask the question and there's no hits found. And you're like, did I misspell something? I hope I did. <laughs> Actually, my favorite one, my favorite one to date, and this, this has happened twice now, is I would publish either a Reddit post, a Stack Overflow post, or even a blog post when I was doing that. Uh, I would post, here was my problem, here was my solution, document the whole thing. And then six months go by, and I have to fix this problem again. And I go, how do you fix this? And then you start Google searching, and your own hits oh, come yeah. up. Yeah. That's when you're like, past me was way smarter than present me. What I've... And what I've found is whenever I figure something out, I document it for myself in my own personal like like documentation. I used to use uh, Evernote a lot, but I've moved on from that. And so most times I when I got stuck, I was like, I, I, I did this a year ago. How did I fix this? Why can I fix this? So, I, so I'm like searching through my own personal documents. So I was like, how did I figure this out? <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it becomes amazing. Like, truth be told, there are so many things that I have to Google. I, I will oh, yeah. openly tell you, I cannot remember for the life of me if I want to split a string or replace a substring in a, a Python. I, I just, I don't remember the syntax because I don't need to. So I will literally Google search Python split string. There it is. Cool. Done. It, you, your brain eventually goes to the part where I know what I need to do. I don't care about the little pieces along the way. I think it's exactly what you were saying. I think one of the biggest skill sets that you can have as an engineer, even if you have no experience in automation or you, you don't feel comfortable in what you're doing, is having just the 
the skill of going on Google and trying to figure it out. And I, and I've seen so many yep. times where so many people have come up to me and ask me, Hey, how do you do this? I'm like, did your question can be found on Google? Why are you, why are you bugging me? Like I, I I'm at the point where I'm like, I need you to Google three things and try those three things before you hit me up. Cause 90% of times that will solve your question. And, and it's not that I'm trying to be rude or any way I will, even after they do that, I've told them many times, like I will spend all day, all week with you to figure this out, but I need you to start, you know, trying and learning these skill sets. Cause that's how you learn. Like I failed so many times often. And even now I'm like, I'm usually like I if I'm like typing away on Linux, I could like, you know, fat finger at a command. I was like, why did I do that way? I, I completely messed up. And, and then, you know, I, I take a step back. And I'm like, oh, that was dumb. <laughs> yeah. Uh, advice about Google searching to, to everyone out there. What I have found is the best thing that ever that, that changed my ability to search is when you search for things, only search the last year. Yeah. Because there are so many times where I will be searching for a bug or an issue or a feature and I'll get a hit, I'll get hits back from 2014, 2015. And that's like, great. That's when it came out. That doesn't work anymore. That doesn't function the way that it does anymore. So when I started having some more difficulties where I had to start relying on me to solve mm -hmm. problems, that's when I started, you know what? The last year, let's see what people <laughs> have said, because then you get more relevant hits. You get more relevant answers. So that, that has been a big uh, discovery of, yeah, I should have been doing that a lot sooner. <laughs> the, the last question I have for you is, let's say for the folks that are not in tech right now, right? They're just about to start their journey or they want to do a career change. What would be your advice for them to, to get their feet wet? So for those people, uh, and that, that encompasses everybody that, that is, you don't have to be an engineer to start. I know, I know engineers that started out as music majors. Um, you have to find what you like because the, uh, the tech field is so vast and we, all of the roles are changing. Uh, the networking field, for example, was predominantly router switch, wireless firewall. Well, now there's cloud networking out there. You, that and that's its own ballgame. It still follows the same principles, but you have different, you have fewer things to worry about, actually. So you kind of have to find out what interests you. And the only way to find out what interests you is to start testing, testing the waters. Um, if you're the type of person that can just face first, go forward, then rock on. Find something, find a project in your house, find a project that you can do for yourself that it's like, you know what would be kind of cool? Uh, what if I built my own web page, right? And you you do it from the ground up. You 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 get a virtual machine on your on your local host, or you can go to Amazon or Google and rent one of theirs, and then you just start figuring out how it works. And then if you at the end of the day when you do that and you go, yeah, but that didn't do anything for me. You try the next yeah. thing. You you go from what about it did I like? What about it didn't I like? Because there are plenty of people that just go. I didn't think I would like this, and it's really kind of cool. Um, storage engineers, those are my favorite ones. That one makes no <laughs> sense to me. I, if I meet storage engineers, and they're like, oh, yeah, it's super awesome. And I'm like, can you explain to me why? Uh, but I'm not them. That's that's not right. for me. I, I have zero interest in that. Uh, but it, that's really what it is. is you gotta You got to just kind of try and be willing to go, you know what? That's just not for me. Um, 
you can go into scripting, you can go into server administration, you can go into the network pieces. Networking is, a lot of people treat this as the black box, but you know what? eBay is awesome. eBay has a lot of equipment that you can purchase for dollars. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean dollars, not even tens of dollars. <laughs> so you can get those and just screw around. And, and, and you, you, you set out with a problem to solve, right? Uh, from a networking perspective, I have two laptops on the equipment and I want them to be able to talk to each other. So what do I have to do? And you start with that problem and you go, all right, that was kind of interesting. So it's that same pattern over and over of like, you just kind of have to figure out what you're interested in and then just be willing to try. And then if it doesn't work, that's okay. That, that's some incredible piece of advice. And I want to thank you for that. And, uh, well, do you, this is, I'm going to edit this part out. Do you have anything else you want to uh, talk about? Oh boy. Let's see. We talked about the GCP, the cloud pieces that are, are different. Uh, we talked about infrastructure. Uh, is your, what, what kind of audience do you have? Uh, do you have feedback from them on what they particularly like to understand and talk I've about? I've asked. They don't really respond to me. <laughs> that's, that's the audience. Yeah. The, the, the only one I could think of that we could talk about is um, user mindsets. Ooh, yeah, okay. So I think, I think talking about how to, uh, how to address user both as the developer and as the consumer, the producer and the consumer might not be a bad thing because then you can start talking about, I have a person that sucks, what do I do? So, you know, I really do appreciate that piece of advice that you gave us. I think that is incredible. And I think a lot of folks will definitely take away from that. But do you have any other last pieces of advice and wisdom that you can part with us? Soft skills. Okay. I know it's not I know it's not the fun and sexy thing that engineers love to hear <laughs> about. Um, and that's and that's fine. But what I want uh, if 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 I could step back from the engineering role and become me as a, as a human to another human in an engineering role, one of the things that you need to master or at least work on is your soft skills, knowing who you're talking to, right? Um, there are so many times where I talk to project managers, I talk to directors, I talk to VPs that they don't know their audience. And because of that, they articulate the wrong message or they are filling in information that the people don't care about. Uh, and then likewise, when I'm on the, the giving side of that, what I need to understand is my audience and what do they, what do they, what do they know and what do they care about? Um, I mentioned before that toolkit that I wrote and it was a it te technically speaking, it was a massive failure because it only had one major user and that was me. <laughs> I wrote it for myself, right? And if I had taken the time for soft skills to say, what would it take for you, my consumer, which is my team members, to use this technology, I would have found out that they need a front end. And I would have responded, I don't know how to do a front end, but I'll go learn. So having the ability to understand your audience and, and understanding what they want and who you're talking to. Um, this is also where we get into the difficulties of things like um, trying not to sound demeaning, right? Because as we talk to each other in the community, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you know. And I can even say that about my colleagues. 
I don't know everything. They don't know everything. So when you start talking about certain things, you can't pretend like you're holier mm -hmm. than thou for knowing something that they don't. But likewise, you can't assume that they don't know or they don't or they don't have the capacity to understand. Um, budgets are really a big thing that a lot of people don't deal with. But it's really easy to understand when you say, I have $100,000 this year. What do I need to spend it on? And you can have your soft skills to start talking with your team members to say, what licenses do we need to renew? What our budget of spending? What our maintenance costs are? And you start understanding the feedback between each other because you're talking to each other as equals. And you're, you're not holier than thou. You're actually able to get to the problem. You're actually able to get to the person and, and deal with that. Because I'm sure, I'm sure you and I'm sure the audience has all dealt with people that stonewall yeah. you, that you want to do this thing and you're ready to go. And they say, no, I literally, we've hired somebody. And that was one of his major problems is that he wanted to do something that would make everybody's mm -hmm. life easier. And, and he was refused. He was, he was told by another director, absolutely not. And so I, I went during that interview, I pressed him on it and I said, so what, what, what did you ever find out the reason for it? And he said, the reason was because he had a, a, a silo complex is that his, his application, his stuff was inside his silo and anybody else coming into the silo was a threat. And so in my brain, now this, during the interview, of course, I'm right. not going to say this because I, I want the candidate to, to know that I understand their response, but in my brain, I want to understand why this person has a silo complex and how can mm -hmm. I help them? Because if I can help them, I bring my experience to the table and I might be able to bring them up. Now, of course, that puts a lot of effort on me, right? It's difficult for me to say, look, I already have a more than 40 hour work week, which sucks, but I also have to take on more efforts. But the fruits of that labor are I can go into another team and bring them up. And that's the DevOps culture mindset. That's the you can do this. You just have to do it this way. And that the way that you engage that are those soft skills. You know who you're talking to. You know how to talk to them. You know what they're interested in. You might talk about the, the technology stack and use the literal terms and they might nod and smile, but they may not know that term. So when you say something like, hey, did you publish, did you, did you create this DNS record? And they'll go, yes. Well, they think they did the DNS record, but they didn't do the DNS record. They did the DHCP reservation, mm -hmm. things like that. So you have to be willing to, to work with your, with your, your subordinates, your colleagues, the people you're talking to to not just get hung up on the actual name or the actual thing, but to be a little flexible and say, okay, no, no, no. So what you did here was this, and that's great. We need to do that too. But what we need to actually do is this part over here, because then that will enable us mm -hmm. to do this. That's a soft skill. And if you can enable those, you will get so much more done. There's, there's two things that you, you mentioned, and I, I want to touch base on the first part. And the first one was silos from what i've noticed with soft skills is a lot of people most often in my experience is that they silo themselves in and they want don't want to let go or relinquish any of that so-called quote-unquote like access or power because they're afraid of losing their job and yeah. in my from what i've seen if you do that you're more at risk at losing your job because they yeah. they the, the the companies of the business mindset is why do we keep this person around if they're not going to share that knowledge because now you're a bottleneck. But 
to what you were mentioning, right? Like if you share that knowledge, you, you have these soft skills, or even if, you know, like I, I used to be a very introvert and I was just shy. I'd kind of be like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Sorry guys. I don't want to bother you. Right. Like, but you know, I, I slowly grab that shell and I realized, Hey, no one's going to bug you for asking questions. Right. If you're not asking questions, you're not working. And if they're not, if you're not asking the right questions, you're never going to learn. And yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No, I, no. So you're, you're absolutely right because questions are what drive us forward. It's that's, it's that seeking of knowledge or information. And sometimes that knowledge or information is, is something working is something doing, how do I do? Because every question should have an answer. And sometimes those answers are maybe simpler. But then you also have to take the next step to say, how can I make it so that you don't have to ask me this question again? And now we get into the DevOps mindset. That's where we get into things like dashboards. <laughs> when we get into status pages, yeah. right? Uh, we get into utilization information. I, I remember I made a feature request to Amazon once because they didn't have a way to tell me my IP space utilization on a subnet. Like there was no oh, number wow. for it. And I said, well, you're telling you're telling me the number of addresses that are there and you're telling me like there was some other piece of information. And I said, but in a dashboard perspective, I literally want to see 20% used, 30% mm -hmm. used. And, and there was some, there was some problem with there where uh, I, I can't remember what the actual issue was, but it, it, it was the, I have to seek the answer. How do I answer it? And then how do I answer it without asking mm -hmm. the question? So the, the people that are siloed, are very terrified. And yes, you're absolutely right. There are plenty of positions that I have seen get walked out because they were afraid of losing their job. So if they're the only ones that can do it, you got to keep them around. And the answer is smart businesses don't. Smart businesses go, I, you're a single point of failure, yeah. you're a risk. So yeah, that's, that, that's the, that is the big thing about that is uh, for siloed people and trying to have that level of control. And that's where, again, the soft skills mm -hmm. come into play of how can I help you? How can I, how can I enable you to do more? How can I make it smarter, faster, better, stronger? Because most often I've seen those folks that do silo themselves in are some of the smartest folks. They just don't want to get past that slight barrier. And, and, we, and you have that conversation with them. I was like, wow, you're, you're far levels higher than me than I would have just thought. And like, I want you to share, like, it's like a two-way street, right? Like, Right now, in this entire conversation we had, I've learned so much from GCP, right? And I would have never thought I would want to touch a GCP, but now I kind of want to go create my own account and start messing around with it, right? Um, but one thing a lot of folks will have an issue with, and especially with soft skills, are kind of talking about things with their coworkers. Like, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, when I recently got uh hired maybe like a year or so ago there's this one guy on the team he would give me a really hard time right and at first i thought maybe i'm just a new guy they're just giving me a hard time because i don't know I'm, i want to come in and change everything i want to automate everything I, I don't know right but i i kind of just you know tough skin whatever just time goes by and i'm like all right it's been seven eight months i am starting to get miserable and I should not be in, in, in a work environment where I'm miserable. Like, there's no point. I want to be happy where I'm at. I want to enjoy and be Absolutely. proud, right? So I was like, you know what? Let me have a, just set a one-on-one -on -one conversation. I haven't told a, a lick to anybody, not my coworker, not my manager, nobody. So I was like, let me just have a one-on-one -on -one with him and see what his response is. 
you know, just had a call with them. And I was like, hey, look, I really don't appreciate you having these conversations with me like this. I don't appreciate the tone. And if we are going to continue working with each other, I want us to have some kind of just understanding and some respect. I just don't like the way it comes off. Maybe you don't mean it that way in any ways. I just don't like it. And it turned out it was harmless and he not did not intend it in any which way. It was more of, you know, just kind of like stress from the scenarios and the situation of, of our work. And he it just it just came out that way. And he didn't realize that he was doing that. And here I was, yeah. thought I was just being hazed. Oh, yeah. It, 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 that's a very common thing, especially in the world that we are in today where remote, remote, remote opportunities are huge. Mm-hmm. Um, no joke. I saw one of my coworkers on camera that I've been working with this person for a year and a month, two months. I saw him on camera for the first time today. <laughs> like, it, it was one of those things where I, as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, that's the guy. I'm, Wow. So it, it, new things come up all the time. Now, especially when it comes to things like Slack or Teams or Discord, where there's you have the written language, and the written language comes off differently in my head than in mm-hmm. your head. And that's, again, part of the soft skills that we have to understand is that if – I'll tell you, I'm from New York. I have a lot of mannerisms and a lot of, of tones <laughs> that don't translate well in text. So I always have to keep that in mind that – when I'm talking to the VPs, when I'm talking to professionals, directors, I will have a very comfortable stick up my ass. (laughs) I will have a very relaxed mindset that I I will just diffuse the room. But I will not be what I am to my colleagues. My colleagues, I'm like, man, this is such a very long series of expletives talking about certain things. My my leadership doesn't really want to hear that. They want to hear a solid engineer. So you've got to massage those language pieces and you got to be able to actually be willing to do it. Like I can, I, I congratulate and applaud you for actually taking that step to, to deal with your coworker. There are so many people that a lot of the problems that they experience could be dealt with one conversation, but that one conversation is the most terrifying yeah. thing that they have. And, and, and if you, your listeners are out there having something like that, I would invite you to take that as one of your problems to solve. One of your engineering problems to solve is that, uh, if you've got a manager or director, that's part of their job is to help you along with that. And you, they may want you to solve it. So that way it doesn't kind of show team fracturing. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll help you enable it. Maybe they'll be able to give you some additional insights. Like, man, this person's under a lot of stress and I'm really sorry. I, we can talk to them about it and say, hey, what's going on? Um, but yeah, there's th- that is a very difficult one to to address and deal with. And so, like I said, I, I congratulate you for tackling that. <laughs> Thanks. And I hope others that are listening to this and to the advice that you just gave, that they do take that step forward because the first few seconds is scary, right? You don't know what the response is, but you will come out feeling a lot better. And regardless of what that feedback is, which hopefully it is good, but if it's not, then that's kind of your answer to maybe find a better opportunity somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And and that that conversation has a lot to it because it also comes to play of what tone do you take coming in? What are they, what's their mood mm-hmm. coming in? There's a lot to it. So it's not just like, I'm going to have the conversation. I'm going to call them up and say, hey, Frank, you're an asshole. <laughs> uh, but so that's that's there's a lot to it. And and, and I genuinely do understand and, and, and empathize with people out there that, you know what, sometimes it's a lot, it's a lot to deal with. And I will tell you from person to person, engineer to engineer, there are ways for help on that. And, and if you 
can get that help from the people that are there to help you, great. And But like you said, sometimes if the help isn't there or the help isn't being helpful, mm-hmm. you are a person, you have free will, the company, you don't need them, they need you. And if they're not willing to, to step up to help through this, there is another company out there that will. Mm-hmm. I promise you. One other thing. I would just want to say about soft skills is if you are new or you want to learn something new and you see somebody doing something cool on your team, don't be afraid to step up saying, Hey, I don't know how to do this, but I'll figure it out. Or, Hey, do you mind if I just tag along and see how you do it? Like, don't be afraid to say those things because no one's going to say no. And if they do, well, (laughs) maybe you want to go. (laughs) They're not one They're not one you can rely on. Um, You're you're actually absolutely right about that. One of the first things that I did as an intern when I was promoted from a desktop support team to a server team member, I didn't have any experience in server team, none whatsoever. I'd never even logged into Windows Server 2003, 2000, 2003. Uh, But the first thing I did was then they they were figuring out their tasks for the year and they were talking about, we have to do all these things. We have to do all these tickets. I stepped up and said, I'll do the tickets. I'll do this. I'll do this. I don't know how to do any of those, mm-hmm. but I just volunteered to do stuff that will enable me to learn. And yeah, nowadays I probably wouldn't do that. I would be like, <laughs> I don't want to do the server tickets anymore. I <laughs> I will build the entire infrastructure for you as long as you will answer the phone for me. <laughs> but if you're getting started, asking questions yeah. and being okay asking questions is, is a key skill to have. Uh, but like I said, if the person that you ask doesn't answer, they're not the person to ask anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I was so annoying when I was an intern and when I became a sysadmin, I was probably the, that one guy, you'd probably like, dude, fuck off. Right. Like bugging you about like, Hey, how did you do that? That's cool. Can you show me that? I don't know how you did that, but can you send me some links? I want to learn more about that. Like, Hey, what are you working on this week? <laughs> can I tag along? I, I would appreciate you. I would never in my mind ever have a problem with you because then I would see that like, wait a second, I can educate somebody and I don't have to do the work anymore. <laughs> You're not wrong, right? <laughs> Give me yeah, the dirty I, work. But, the, but but it's fantastic because realistically what I want is I want to do the work that I want. And then you coming in as a junior, the, 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 the collective you, the metaphorical you, coming in as a junior that wants to do and learn more to get better and smarter. Mm-hmm. Well, we both can solve our problems. All I have to do is step up and all you have to do is step up. Mm-hmm. You have to ask the question or you have to be willing to stick your face in it. And I have to be willing to receive that. Yeah, yeah. And that's, and that's a, that's a big deal. But like I said, if that person you ask the question to doesn't answer it, they're not the person to ask questions. Yeah. And I think the mentorship aspect of it too, is also a challenge of a soft skill because often a lot of people can do, but they just can't kind of like explain that back. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Sure. Sure. It does. Because essentially you have the answer in your head, mm-hmm. but you can't articulate it in, in a, in a way that you go, wait a second, how am I? how am I cohesively explaining this thing? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I forget that all the time. Actually, I had an engineer that I'm working with and I'm teaching him how to build a uh, golden images, base images. And I forgot a couple of key steps along the way. <laughs> so when I said, Oh yeah, just copy this clone over, copy this ISO, do these things. And I forgot one important step. So when I was, I was testing it, t- testing the pipeline, and I was like this error message. What didn't he do? Oh, I didn't tell him to go do that. This is on me. So 
that that happens and and it's, it's okay it's okay that yeah. that happens like uh we were having one issue with like confluence where this one user just wouldn't go active like he left the company they came back but for some reason his profile wouldn't get synced with ad you know they did everything they should have you know ran the, the sync in the background they checked his profile still wouldn't show up checked the database still wouldn't show up and then they pulled me in like hey do you know what to do and i was like i don't know i just checked clicked around a few things and i was like what happens if i disable them and re-enable them right just boop boop and there you go it worked i was like how did you do that how what made you think dude i was like i have no idea i just I was like what's the worst going to happen lose his profile <laughs> like he's, yeah can't log in anyways <laughs> yeah that's also that's another one of those uh, skill sets that people learn along the way yeah and it's very dangerous like don't get me wrong there's a phrase learn in production <laughs> it, it it's a very true phrase one that we hope to not do anymore yeah uh but yes being being comfortable to say what's the worst that can happen yeah and being okay with the results on that yeah like there was uh m- my mentor was a a principal in my previous company and i learned a lot about enterprise architecture from him and it, it was just a wealth of knowledge that i gained and every time something break he would say well it's broken you can't break it anymore what's the worst that's going to happen us revert well we're gonna have to do that anyways and i was like yeah. okay poop and then it starts working i was like huh and then i think having at least somebody on your team to be that candid and just kind of nudge you over the edge is all you need is just a little bit of encouragement. Just like, dude, just click the button. You need to be informed. It's okay to fail. Yes. Yes. And I, I will, I will tell all of you engineers. This is, this is me now. This is Mike telling all of you engineers out there. It is okay to fail, but also understand what happens when you fail. <laughs> because then, because I don't want anybody to you know what, Mike on the podcast, he said that you could do this. And I restarted their production server because what's the worst that could happen? The answer was, <laughs> You took down production, so don't 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 do that without understanding the scope and scale. But I give you permission to fail as long as you know what the, what will happen if you fail. Yeah, that's what Sandbox and Dev is for. Yep. So I do want to say, you know, thank you, Mike, for all that information you gave us, and especially all that advice, because I think a lot of the people who are even in the field now who are, I would say, veterans, or if they are trying to switch, they do forget a lot of the things that we talked about, right? The soft skills. Um, the knowledge transfer, or just trying to switch careers, right? Whether it maybe you're in database and you just want to switch into something else, you get into that siloed mindset that you often forget that, hey, how do I try something new? And maybe there's something better for me to do even within my own career. So I do just want to say thank you for taking the time and talking with us. I do appreciate it. And it means a lot to me and I'm pretty sure it means a lot to the audience. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm absolutely happy to be here. I appreciate you taking the time and having me on. Uh, and what's interesting is how you what you said that uh, it gave me that idea of the full circle. What we're talking about is the day in the life of the senior cloud engineer. The day in the life is all of those things. Mm-hmm. The day in the life of what I do is finding problems, solving them, communicating with them, and then dealing with the people, and then answering questions and making everything better. So that, that allows us to come full circle of what do I do every day? All of those things. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in. And as always, take care.